Father, as always, we want to come in here and um, commit our time to you and pray that um, your Holy Spirit would just be poured out in this room as we, as we go verse by verse through your word and um, desire to hear you speak, not just pull apart what is there and exegete it and look at key repeated words, but use those as tools so that we clearly hear you speak and speak to our hearts in a way that changes us and transforms us. Father, I just, I, I hope that um, all of us through this study are beginning to marvel in a, in a deeper and in a greater way the fact that you spoke to us. I remember that preacher last week that we heard in here and him talking about how God gets down on his knees like, like a father to a child to speak to us on our level in a way that we can understand. And, and I marvel at that, that he loves us so much. That, that, that you love us so much that you would do that. And that you continually, when we drift away, when we get ourselves so concerns, concerned with the cares of this world or the busyness or we just don't even pay you any attention, that you're still there. You haven't moved at all and you're still wanting to speak to us and enter into a relationship with us and um, how much joy that brings you. And when we are in that place, it brings us joy as well, and how quickly we forget that when we get so burdened down or so busy. Father, um, forgive us when we do that. Forgive us when we take lightly this great salvation that you so generously provided for us in your beloved Son. Father, we commit our time to you now this morning, and we praise you, and we thank you in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. We're continuing on in chapter 1 and moving a little bit into chapter 2, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but um, in the very first word is for. For. To which of the angels did God ever say? Why is that word for there? Anybody? I didn't put that in your homework, but... What is the word for? It's three letters, small little word. But what, what, how does it function? Um, not really. Some versions will say now, but really for is a better translation. It's a little bit like a therefore. It's connecting. Because of what I just said, for, he's just continuing his thought is what he's doing when he uses a, a for. I'm con- I'm, I'm still speaking about what I spoke about right before I said this for. And what he had just said, if you recall, remember last week we learned about God speaking through his son and all of those things about his son, that his son is heir of all things, that he is the creator of the world, the exact representation of God's nature, that he is the radiance of his glory that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then toward the end of that, it says he made purifications for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he has has inherited is more excellent. So he's brought up that subject of superiority to the angels, and now he's going to continue it. So you, you looked at some key words in this passage. What, what were the key words? Or who were the key people? 
Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the angels, okay, God, mm -hmm. God the Son. Yes, Brenda. Oh, and it also started getting, it was a bit mixing between, is he talking about God the Son or God? God. Okay. Like it was, it was this, you, it was hard to sort out, I guess. Okay, you felt like it was hard to sort out who he was talking. Okay. You had to read it closely and say, okay, because you know it's like your throne and it's talking about the sun. Yes, because it sounds like it's talking about because you have to look at who's speaking, which then that brings back to like a key phrase. Phrases can be key as well. Did you pick up on a key phrase that follows from verses one through four? What was a real key phrase, two word phrase in in one through four? That, hmm? What'd you say? Or again. Well, or again, yes, but I'm thinking of something else. From, from the first, what did he say in the first four verses? God spoke. I love that last week when, when Scott from off in the Yonderland just, God spoke. It was very <laughs> profound. Yes, God spoke. Now, tie that, BB, to the or again or again that keeps coming up. What is that? Who is explaining that? God. And what does it say in the scripture? It says, well, no. It says, he says, or again, he says. Do you see what I'm, do you see where I'm trying to get you to see that connection? He spoke, which was so key in those first through four verses, God spoke in his son. He is still, he hadn't, he hadn't gotten quiet yet. <laughs> He's still speaking, because what does it say in this section? God spoke, and then it says, or again, he says, meaning God. God says, because he is going to continue this, this, his subject matter, which what is the main theme in these verses? As you looked at all those key words, and you kind of, do you all see how you can take those key words and those key phrases and just write them down and begin to string them together and say, wow, this section of scripture here is about this. So what is this section of scripture about? Okay, the supremacy of Christ, that he is, so what is he saying? He is Christ, Jesus is superior to whom? Angels. Superior to angels. So in his speaking, and in his, and again he says, or when he says, to which of the angels did he say? Which is a rhetorical question, meaning what? He didn't. <laughs> to which of the angels did he say? Well, he never did say these things. But he did of the Son. So he's going to go through and do this, this quite intense comparison of, of the Son and the angels so that they will see how superior, how much greater than, better than Jesus is. Because remember their situation. What is their situation? The, the original audience that the author, our anonymous author, is talking to, who 
What is the situation of these original hearers? They were being tempted to go back to the law, to Judaism, but why? Yeah, because they're being persecuted. Life is getting hard for them. You know, if you read on, they've, they've suffered the seizure of their property. Their, um, you know, things are being said about them. Some have been imprisoned because of their faith. Life is getting very, very hard for them. And so doubts are seeping into their thinking of, it, well, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is this Christianity really what I think it is? If I go back, if I take the path, and I loved it when you said that, Karen, last week, if I take the path of least resistance, I can come out from under all this pressure, and my life will be easier. And you can under, have some empathy for them that they would do that. And so the author is writing to show them, no, you can't go back. Look what you have. Look at who you have, how God has spoken to you, and he's going to refocus all of their attention on, on Jesus right here. You have got to see him. If you're going to hold firm and stand tall and live victoriously through what you're going through, which, by the way, is probably going to be getting worse, you, you've got to have your sights on him and know who he is. So, so he begins to make those comparisons between the contrast between um, the sun and the angels. Did anybody ask yourself the question, why does he start with the angels? Did you come up with any answers? Okay. 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 That's a good thought. Yeah, that's good. Good. Anybody else? Supreme over Jesus. I think they did think they were really supreme. These. Were you going to say something? I was going to say that God used angels to speak to the, their fathers back through the mm -hmm. Old Testament, and that would, that would have influence in the Jewish unity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other thoughts? They made them stronger. Yes, they did. They would bow down to them. If you read, and I didn't go back because we're not doing a study on angels. We could have done a whole study, a whole week on the study of angels, but, but we're not. And when they made a visitation often to someone in the Old Testament, their, their, their presence, unless they, they appeared as a man, their presence was frightening. You know, Isaiah in the throne room of God sees angels, and he's frightened by it. So they, they, are, these, they are angelic 
they're, of course, they're angelic. They're angels. They're angelic. <laughs> they're angelic beings that, as B.B. said, they, they, they seem to be able to pass between the heavens, to be in the presence of the heavens and the presence of God and come down to earth. So they're, they're um, some, they, they definitely have something we don't have. And they can go into his very presence and see God. At, at this very moment, and there's something about them that is frightening that you would say, fear not. Jim has a comment. That, that is true. It's amazing, though, the number of times that that is not the case. Yes, there are times when they just appear as a man, yeah, a and they don't even know it's an no angel. Idea what they're dealing with, and they, yeah. they stop and they go, wait a second. That wasn't a human interaction. So the confusion that, that we have with angels is both magnanimous presence that they can distribute or, or mm -hmm. they can demonstrate, and then somewhat of the hidden beauty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even in the book of Acts, right, when they, when they, saw, they saw Peter's angel, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. it was human form. Mm -hmm. So that's the part where it gets kind of interesting. For us to only have that view of angels also doesn't do the evidence justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if, they, if he went against God, then he did. It appears that he doesn't. They don't anymore. That's what it appears. That there was a time before we were created, most likely, or somewhere in that creation account that they did, that yeah. some did. Yeah. Well, that, maybe they all did. I mean, he thinks about it. Again, the texts are really They're, yeah. what, what is. And you should probably be aware of this. Some of the texts that you are going to quickly associate with Satan, mm -hmm. or and even the development of the which is really not a name that comes from the original languages. Um, it could also be said, I'm trying to think of which one it is, I want to say the king of Tyre. I think it is. I think it is the king of Tyre. Uh -huh. so I think you're right. It's, you, you have to ask, is the example that Satan, Satan and his cohort that they demonstrated, is that a comparison to Tyre and his cohort? Mm -hmm. Or is it a reference to Tyre texts are not, are not clear. A couple of, a little while ago when I was in the, well, there's an account in the, uh, in, in both Samuel, 2 Samuel, as well as uh, Chronicles, where one of them says the devil tempted David, and the other one says the Lord did. Yeah. One of the, so, that was one of our tough texts. Yeah. Do you remember that? Text. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where, it's interesting, the word angel just means messenger. Mm -hmm. So when mm -hmm. we try to kind of add more like apostle, it just means someone who is sent. Mm -hmm. So the angel is a messenger from God. There is obviously some intrinsic beingness that mm -hmm. is different than us. So to just say they're messengers like us, that's not true either. They are messengers like us, and they are messengers not like us. So, but you would be shocked at the limited amount of information that we have about angels and demons, mm -hmm. and particularly their falls. Mm -hmm. It is amazingly small. So I love to just, the humility of stopping and saying 99% of what I believe about angels and demons does not come from the Bible. Mm -hmm. Do you remember back in, was it in the 90s, that the whole subject was so popular? Oh, yeah. Frank Peretti, thank you. 
Yeah, well, that and that Touched by an Angel, I never watched that. And, and, that, and ladies will remember the decor, the angels, the pictures in your house of angels. Yeah, I still have one of those. It's folded down on top of a bookshelf. You can't see it, but it was very, it was like we were fascinated by the whole concept of angels and that they were out there and we might have an encounter with them or we have a personal angel that watches over us. And now I see the shift where it's just like we don't, angels, what are angels? It's kind of shifted the other direction, don't you think? Yeah, a little bit where we don't even give any thought to them. I think they're very intriguing. They're very mysterious. And I can see where someone would get so fascinated with them that you would lose sight of who Jesus is. Because they, they do have some, as Jim said, intrinsic qualities about them that we don't have. And they do kind of seem to go back and forth. So it would be easy to get caught up in a fascination with them. But the author wants us to be fascinated with him. So what are some of the things he says in the contrasting the angels in Jesus to prove that Jesus is better? Jim mentioned one, that they're messengers. They're messengers of God. What else did you learn about them from this text? Hmm? They worship, they, the angels worship Jesus. Yes, he is worshipped, and they worship him, because he is the one worthy of worship. What else? They're what? God did not begot them, because God begat, or says, today I have begotten you. He's begotten him as what? As what? Yes, as his son. So he is the begotten son. And what did it say in the text about, did God ever say? To which of the angels did he ever say? What, this is that, you know, if you go back to verse 4, he, is, he has inherited a more excellent name. This is the more excellent name, son, because are the angels ever called son? No, they are, they are sometimes referred to in Scripture as sons, little s, of God. You can find references where they're referred to as sons of God, referring to, to angels as a group, but they are not son, capital S. They do not have this more excellent name. And remember, in Jewish thinking, a name wasn't just a name. They didn't pick names because we thought they sounded really cute and we just liked it, and, or it was unusual. They picked a name that was going to reflect the character and the very essence and the nature of the person bearing the name. So, of course, son. Son, it reflects the nature. It radiates. I don't even want to say reflects. It radiates. It is the nature of who God is. They don't have this more excellent name that he has. What else? Okay, so Jesus sits at the right hand of God. At right hand. Okay. They will perish, but he is forever. Okay, he is eternal. He is absolutely eternal. Everything about this earth is going to be, I love those word pictures. Did you see those comparisons like just rolled up like an old garment and pass away? 
but he will remain forever. He will not change. He is the same, which is beautiful. What else? They were not? Okay, so they're not eternal. Why are they not eternal? Okay, they are, they're not eternal because they're created beings. Versus the son who is what? No, but who is he? What did we learn last week? Where's his relation to creation? He is God, and what did God do? He created it. So he's eternal, he's creator. For by him and through him all things were created. The he holds the upholds the universe by the power of his word, or the word of his, is it the power of his word? Word of his power, he's the one that upholds the universe. He is the one that keeps it together. By his word, he is the creator. They are the created beings. There's such a huge gulf of difference there. Very much so. What else? Yeah, he's referred to as Lord. Isn't there one in here where he's called God? Yes. And you, when you think about sitting at the right hand of God, he has a, a superior honor than they do because he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay? Mm -hmm. I knew someone would ask that. <laughs> I think it's just metaphorical, but Jim probably has a good answer, our resident scholar. Yeah, it's metaphorical. It's metaphorical. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it's, it's, honestly, it's a great question. Um, no, it really is. It, weren't there a couple of, and I didn't have time to go look, there are a couple of times when they appear where they, they basically are instruments of exercising judgment with flames of fire. Sure. Mm -hmm. But remember how mm -hmm. the language is being used mm -hmm. to bring apart, to bring to, bring to us like a, a meaning. Mm -hmm. And I don't even want to say deeper, because it's not this, this, this historic mysterial try to figure out what's his point. His point is, is that they're messengers. So they're, they're like his servants, mm -hmm. which is even different than Jesus. Because Jesus is about doing the will of the Father. But he, the way that he is described, I and the Father are one. I'm here to do my Father's work. But it's not the same thing as, a, as, a, as an angel who is sent, right? It's a different kind of, that's why it's described not as God sending Jesus only, but when you, this is why you got to go back and say, okay, but there are other ways to describe angels, or there are other ways to describe the relationship, or even the sending of God and Jesus. Jesus is the only one that is described as surrendering to the Father's will. Um, it is the equality with God that Jesus not decide to keep, but he surrendered it in it. So he had a will, right? That was one, this is the part where it's complicated, it's one with the Father, whereas the angels have a will that is one with the Father, but because they are, they, they, they you know, again, it's just they're just, they're just ministers. Yeah, they're just, they're ministers. They're errand boys. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, they're errand boys, y'all. That's, I mean, that's what they are. God says, go do this, and they go. They're the intermediaries to, to the, um, 
to go do what God has asked them to do. And in that respect, I know, but I can't think of where it is, where they executed judgment. They were, the, they were sent on an errand to execute judgment, which would be that flames of fire. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't think they have sex. I don't think they have a, a gender identity. Do they? They have masculine names, but they appear to be sexless by their, yeah. by their nature. Yes. Like that sex, came out wrong. <laughs> sex, sex is yeah. sex, um, sex gender, the gender part of sex. Yes, that's what I meant. They don't have a gender. There's a limited number of them, yeah. although lots of them, because Revelation tells us there are myriads so of angels. Don't get trapped. Don't get trapped in again trying to apply human ideas or human standards mm -hmm. to that which is not human. Mm -hmm. Like we do the same thing with pets. I mean, I really. I mean, I'm not oh, Jim. This, 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 this is where you don't want to hear it, but I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sure, so I but this is what happens. When we begin to personify animals in trees. So when the tree is Pocahontas, don't cut me down because I'm a living being. And we get this personification. When we take human attributes and we begin to attribute it to things and to objects, it confuses us. You can laugh about it, but it's true. It genuinely confuses all of us. We do the same thing with angels. Is that we, we look at them and got to be careful personifying them and putting on them human attributes that they don't intrinsically have. Mm -hmm. it, will, it will confuse you because, I mean, the real truth is, is that God chose in his sovereignty to not save them. Mm -hmm. And he chose to save us. And if you begin, well, that's not nice and that's not fair, well, talk to Walt Disney about it because he would probably write you a movie that would help you kind of process that. But the biblical truth is, is that... There is something else that's going on that I don't understand. So be careful with per, with the art of personification. And so just just finally, then, then ministers and angels are probably ministers work for servant. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's where English would help in terms of this. This is why the the, the word is the minister diakonate is the word for servant. So we think minister, but no. Well, and, and they're yeah, they're just serving. The, you know, look at what it says even in the scripture right here. What does it say? Who do they provide? Is it in this passage? Who do they provide help to? Yeah. So they're they're for our benefit to serve us. But they, you know, comparing the Lord. Let's go back. Go to Matthew four eleven. Jesus at the end of his time in the wilderness. Here's an example. In 4.11, after being tempted by the devil, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. They came and ministered to him. Remember, he's been in the wilderness 40 days, and he hasn't eaten during that time. So, he is taking, they are taking care of him. And then if you go over to Luke 22, Luke 22, this is in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. 
verse 43. I'm going to start in 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel of he- from heaven strengthening him. And there's lots of verses in Acts about the angel coming. The angel came and opened the door to, to the jail to let, let them out. They, they are ministers come to serve and take care of us and meet needs. That's their role. So Jesus is the son. He is the one that sits at the right hand of God. He has the superior name, the superior, more honoring position. They're just, they're just, they're, they're the errand boys. Yeah, I think they do. I don't think they've disappeared. I think they're still out there. The key is to have a healthy balance of recognition that they do and that they're there. They haven't disappeared as I think, I don't see any reason why they couldn't, well, I know they can. I've heard stories. I've, I've heard, I heard a missionary in the 90s, she's dead now, that has a story of angels protecting her. And she, she was, uh, is when the Japanese came in, they were missionaries. Her husband had already been taken to an intern camp by the Japanese, it was her and some servants and other women up on the hill in this house. They were defenseless, really, and there were thieves in the area, and they came and they, they um, broke into their house one night, and another night, she said you could hear them out there coming, and they, they didn't have anything to, way to defend themselves but just to pray, and they did, knowing that these people may come and hurt them, and they didn't. For some reason, they didn't. And after the war, when she went back, she confronted us. She knew who was down there. She knew who this person was. She went to them and said, do you remember that night? Why? You knew we were defenseless. Why didn't you come? And we had no way to protect ourselves. And he said, there were men with this glow around them all around the house, and we were scared of them. And so we stayed away. And she said, oh, my goodness, the angels. I mean, you hear these kind of stories in those those incidences, and I don't think she was lying. That was her experience. She told this story, and that's what that man said after the war to her. So, yeah, I think they're still there, but the keys are not getting so fascinated with them that we lose sight of who he is because he is more fascinating and more worthy. He is worthy of our time and our attention and our worship. Okay, anything else? What are some other things about the differences who Jesus is. There's more we can put up here about who Jesus is. Okay, so his throne is forever and ever. That eternality of his throne, he will sit on that throne for eternity. What else? Yeah, he is anointed, isn't he? So God anointed him with the oil of gladness. He did not anoint the angels. Did you notice the fact that he has a scepter and a kingdom? Did you see that? What does that imply? Hmm? Yes, he has a scepter, a kingdom, which means he has authority. Where they are the messengers and the ministers. So he has a superior um, honor, a superior status, 
and that he is ruling on the throne forever and ever. He is the creator. They are the created beings. Anything else you want to add to this? He is worshipped. They worship him. His name is more excellent because he is the Savior. Yes, thank you, June. He is the Savior. Okay, think about that for a minute in relation to the angels. What does Jesus provide? He provides salvation. Do they? Not at all. Not one bit. Mm-mm. They will change. I think the really key point is they can serve. They cannot save. Would you? I mean, I would write that down. They can serve, but they cannot save. They may intrigue us. They may be higher than us as human beings. They may be able to do things we can't do and have powers we don't have but they can't save us. And Jesus saves by making purification for sins, offering the once for all final complete offering that provides salvation for us, and he sits at the right hand. And not only does he save, as we're going to see, because the mention of high priest starts to come up uh, next week, and then it's going to really get developed throughout the book. And I told you this the first week, that theme of his present work is very strong in the book of Hebrews. They can't save, and they can't intercede on our behalf. So they are not the ones interceding on our behalf to the, right, to the Father's ear on the throne. Jesus is. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jim. Mm-hmm. The fact that they cannot intercede for us, it really helps me think that what I need is not somebody who can argue my case. I don't need somebody who can articulate it or who can try to pull on heartstrings. Like, I, I really need a savior. And so it's interesting. So, so often when we look at, you know, the mediators, it's kind of based on their artistic or linguistic uh, ability. Mm-mm. And it's, it's even good to recognize how much then Jesus and God are truly one in the plan. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is the emissary of God's plan, which is the incarnation of himself through the second part of the Trinity, so that we might find peace. So the mediation is so natural and normal. Whereas so often I feel like, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in an adversarial relationship with, with, uh, with, with Scott Roach, and I need someone to come in and to, to fix that by, like, tricking him or convincing him somewhat against his will. But it is the will of God to love us. It is the will of God to forgive us. It is the will of God to send his son. It's that John 3.16 verse. The more that you think about that, that's why, that's why an impressive angel, when you're dealing with God, how do you impress him? <coughs> right? If you just stop and think about how do you impress God, it has to be in conjunction with his plan. 
which is why Jesus is the old mediator. Mm-hmm. It fits so beautifully <laughs> together. Um, so anyway, just kind of thinking about that and thinking about how we use mediation. It's mm-hmm. like, well, both of us are wrong a little bit, and a mediator is going to help us figure that out. But that's not our problem with God. Mm-hmm. And I've heard, but I've heard people, by the way, I've literally say to me, God and me had it out. He, he realized there were some things he needed to give on. <laughs> Are you kidding? You've heard people say that? And it is not as uncommon as you think. But, you, but here, do you know what you say, though? Do you know what? And I mean by you, I mean not. Do you know what we say? We say, but God understands why I look over that sin in my friend. I don't think but he God, does. God gets that. That's the same. That's the same idea. Yeah. My friend left her. Whatever. I mean, my friend did whatever, and I'm and I know what I should do, and I'm not going to do it. But God gets that. God understands that. That's the same mentality. Mm-hmm. God gave on this. God gave up his his standard. God gave up his expectation of repentance. God gave up his expectation of obedience. So it is so flagrant when, in particular, this one woman said to me. God had to give up this, this, and this, and then I decided I would give up this. It was funny because God's were three and hers were one. But when, when I was laughing at that and when I walked away, I thought, I do that more often than I ever want to admit. God gave on these things. God understands. And when we say God understands, it's not like he knows. It's like he accepts. If he doesn't accept, you've got to doesn't accept it. He may, you may forgive it through repentance, mm-hmm. but he doesn't accept it. Apart from, he doesn't accept it. Never accepts it. I mean, never. That's why repentance is so critical, and it is mediation through that repentance and what Christ did, which is so mandatory, which means you have to come to terms with who God is by his perfect, unchanging, unchangeable, incredibly loving, mercy first, judgment as the final result of you getting your way. But I know it sounds dumb to say God gave on this, but we say it more often than we realize. At least I do. I'm just a little dumbfounded. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Thoughts, comments? Think about that. That's so right. I mean, we might not say those words, but Mm -hmm. our life. Mm-hmm. I guess I see it more, and I know we're rabbit I see it more as not so much I'm asking God to give, but that I'm assuming he accepts my sin because that's just the way I am, rather than recognize it as sin and repent of it. Does that make sense? I see a lot of that. And that's why I really appreciated your sermon on Sunday. So I see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you all want to add to this, these differences between Jesus and, and the um, angels? Very obvious, isn't it? it is, if we just step back and look at it, and it's so obvious. All they, all they are, they're, they're messengers, they're servants. They are the ones, you know, even when... When Jesus was born, it was the angels that said glory to God in the highest and worshipped. 
because of the birth, because of the incarnation of Christ, a very familiar thing. They are just created beings. They are not eternal. They are sent to serve us. They cannot save. They cannot intercede on our behalf. They are not sitting at the right hand of God as the merciful, faithful high priest that we're going to see. But Jesus, Jesus who is worthy of worship, the begotten son, the one with the more excellent name, who has the superior honor in that he sits at God's right hand, and not only that, he rules and reigns. He has a scepter in his hand and a kingdom that he rules over. And he is Lord. He is God. He is, as Jim said, part of the Trinity, and we lose sight of that. Remember, he is the Word, the Word made flesh. He is our Savior. He, he has provided uh, salvation for us. He can save. They cannot. Wow. This is, this, this is what we have. You can see as he presents this and he says, look, consider, see him. This is where your focus needs to be. This is the anchor. He'll later on talk about, there'll be a phrase later on about the anchor of our soul. This is your anchor, is to know who Jesus is and who, and I'll add in there that he is not saying right here, but, but it's said everywhere else, and what your identity is in him because we are in Christ. That's what holds us. That's what gives us victory in all of our trials and circumstances that we live out every day. Because life is hard. It's just, it is, it's just hard. Questions, comments? Okay, moving into chapter two, and we'll touch briefly on this, and I think Jim's gonna um, expound upon it more the second hour. The very important word, first word in chapter two, what is it? Therefore, why is that word so important? Sometimes we miss, in looking for the big doctrinal words, we miss the words that are really important. Therefore, why is it therefore? Yeah, what is the therefore, therefore? Yes, what is the therefore, therefore? It is, it is bring, I'm going to, therefore says, I've got a logical conclusion here based on everything I just said above it. When I mark a therefore in my, on my observation worksheet, where, where it says, therefore, here's what I do. I do this little arrow going, pointing back up. That means, therefore, woo, I need to go back up and say what was just said before that he's going to build upon, that he's going to say, well, because what I just said was so true. Now, therefore, you know, in the letters and on the epistles, you'll see Paul do this in almost all of his epistles. Well, he does it in all of his epistles. The, he will lay out all this doctrine. You know, like Romans, those of you all did Romans a year ago, 11 chapters of doctrine, and then in 12.1, therefore, because of the mercies of God that I've just exegeted and expounded for 11 chapters, now, this is how you live. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is your logical way, of, it's just logically who you are and how you are to be and to serve, therefore, because all this is true. So that's a huge word to go back and see, therefore what? So how is he tying what he's about to say? What does he say right after therefore? Therefore what? I lots of whispering. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest 
we drift away from it. What have we heard? Therefore, pay attention to what we've heard. What have we heard? All of this. Christ is so much greater. All of these truths about who he is, this is what I've just said. Therefore, because of all of this that I've said, pay attention to it lest you drift away. Now, what is, that? What is, the, um, what is the metaphor of drifting away? I, I, mean, I gave you the Greek word in there. What is, what is that metaphor and that word? What picture does that give us of what's, what might be happening here? Slowly, what else? Just kind of float away. Oh, I love that, Suzanne. You may not even realize it's happening. What else? It's a gradual process. Not necessarily intentional. It's more because of inattentiveness and carelessness. You know, you use the, the ship metaphor, and I'm not a boater, so if someone else is in here, you feel free to speak up. But it's that I'm not paying attention to where I am and, and what's happening, where the currents are, where, where the um, rocks and the water are. And pretty, or pretty soon, I've just, I've just drifted off, and oh my gosh, where am I? Yeah. Yeah, you're not tethered. You know, a little while ago, I was sitting here sipping my beer, looking out here at the shore. Now I'm in the middle of the ocean. Where on earth am I? I don't even see any land. So that, that's, the, that's the picture there. It wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't anything that just was a decision. Oh, I think I'll just drift away. It was just a gradually drifting away because of neglecting the truths of, of Jesus and who he is. Now, how do we do that? How does that happen? Is he saying, be careful. Pay attention about what you have heard. How does that happen? How are we prone to just drift away? Busyness. Mm-hmm. All the time. Mm-hmm. When they are not within the word and in prayer with them and with this person. Did you hear Genevieve? When you're not in the word, when you're not in the community of believers, it's it's easy for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Can you think of other ways that happens? Okay. Yeah, did you all hear? She says you focus on, on what's happening around you more than focusing on Christ. You let that consume you, whatever the circumstance is, rather than turning your attention back to, to Christ as the one who can help you in the midst of that circumstance. Yeah. Yes, Phyllis. It's an unpopular statement, I guess, from what Jim said, but um, when our focus becomes on the creator mm-hmm. instead of the creator, mm-hmm. we so easily slip into the, who doesn't love a fuzzy puppy? You know, it just, it, uh, and that's not the only thing that we lose our focus about, mm-hmm. but it does. It just 
I thought you didn't like dogs. No, I just like them like dogs, not like humans. So that's the difference. It's like I think they're dogs. Other people think they're humans. I like to look at them. That was it? That's your profound thought? Yep, that's it. From back there behind the wall? <laughs> I think it also happens when we do what Jim said. We don't, we don't repent of our sin, but we justify it. We minimize it. And I think the longer you can minimize it and not uh, repent of it, then you, you really drift away. Do you understand what I'm saying? I may not be wording that well, but I think that's a huge way that we drift away. And, and I think... just coming off the top of my head. I think when we lose sight of his majesty and we lose sight of who he really is, then it is easier to get caught up in not repenting. Does that, I have, because he and all of his glory and all of his majesty, if I really see that, it's going to, it's going to bring, it's going to reveal my sin. I can't be in that presence and not have some kind of conviction of sin. Do you see it's a two-way street there? That's the protection is to be in his presence so that he can convict me of sin and say this is sin in your life. This thing you've been doing, this thing you've been struggling with or this character trait that you think is just who you are, can I just kindly tell you that's sin and it needs to be repentive of and it is not reflective of who I am and you are my child and so you shouldn't be caught up in that either either. So when I get away from this, then it's easier to drift into, oh, that's just how I am. That's not really sin. It's a two-way street. Yeah, Lynn. You all should be standing where I'm standing. I just have to say this, Jim. Because he's back behind that little thing. But when he hears something, he, the chair comes right out. <laughs> You're funny. Right here? Yeah. The one, no, but here's what I'm going to say. I mean, obviously, it's, you've got to pay careful attention that you don't drift away. Okay? So I don't know how you deal with that. But the one thing you probably cannot do from this text is warn Christians that they can't fall away. 
That's the one thing you can't do. You might want to, in a long, roundabout way, explain how the perseverance of the saints works. I agree with that. Um, although I don't know if I totally end up there, but I understand. So that would be our Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But they don't warn people to not pay close attention because they may fall away. But there is within Christianity a strong segment that do the exact opposite of this and many, 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 many other texts, okay? Which is just a blanket, not thought through, hey, a Christian can't fall away. That's the one thing you cannot do from this text. If you want to deal with the complicated nature of what it means to fall away and then how does salvation work in that and how does God's sovereignty work in that? I, I'm with you, totally. But to just flippantly say that statement totally screams against this text. That's the one thing I've never understood. How does a Christian just flippantly promise another Christian they can't fall away? Are you basing that on the strong warning after, for since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, the whole I'm, thing? I'm doing it on a couple of things. One would be the whole Bible. Okay. And then another one, no, I mean, I'm not kidding. I would do it on the whole Bible. For people to say, um, it's kind of like you don't have to forgive them. I wouldn't say that because Jesus actually says if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. How can you tell that person that they don't have to forgive? The same foolishness is when we just irresponsibly, and the problem is the question of that goes far deeper, right? But we have within American Christianity an absolute commitment to make people feel better about themselves at all costs. And so we promise them a mindless version of it. And I truly believe it's more complicated than just you can lose your salvation. I, I'm not, that's not me either. But to, to look at this text, pay careful attention so that you do not drift away. And then you walk in and go, hey, well, the one thing you can't ever do is drift away. Then this text makes no sense whatsoever. It says you can drift away, but it's not saying how far away. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's opening up the can of worms for later warnings. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. No, but you have to. You have to deal with it. I mean, it's amazing. No, we will have to deal with that. No, that's not yeah, what I'm saying. Not at all. Be careful of what? But again, the, the, the careful of what here is God's ultimate eternal condemnation cast into hell. That's See, I'm not sure that is in this particular text. He's scooting back. I know, he's scooting back. We, I went. Can I say this? Can you let me wrap up in my two remaining minutes? And I was going to try to finish five early. Okay, and then if you want, if you want to, my class, our class, if you want to rebuke that, you can. Okay, because, 
because now, just let me finish my thought before you jump in, JJ. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect a so great a salvation? It doesn't say if we reject. Yeah, you're going to disagree with that. Did you see this quote? Of course, he is Reformed Calvin. No, I, 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 I believe that John Calvin has a better... John Calvin doesn't agree with you. Just saying. And that's why. <laughs> okay, just hold your thoughts. Then you can say something later. I love this quote. I mean, I'm not saying I totally disagree with Jim. I was hoping we could sit down together and have Jay. The... Um, Warning passages before we brought that out in here. <laughs> well, I promise you they've thought about it before. Yeah, I don't know that they were thinking about it on this one. How many of you thought about can a Christian lose your salvation? Raise your hand. From this, How many from of you this. While you were doing your study for this, were wondering about that. Raise your hand if you were thinking about it the last 24 hours. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Well, here's my point, and I don't think this takes away from that from what you're saying at all, Jim. I do like the John Calvin thing, that if you read it, it is not only the rejecting of the gospel, but even the neglecting of it that deserves severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace that is offered. God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser is our ingratitude if we do not have their proper value. Um, that there is a blameworthiness in ignoring God's mercy more so than breaking the law. It's kind of what I got out of that without even having to go or not go to the can you lose your salvation. I, what I got out of it is how dare me, for, without even going to ask that question at all, I'm not, which we will ask it and we will deal with it, and present both sides, and I'm not even sure where I stand yet, Jim, on that, but how dare I take for granted the mercy and the love and the grace that he has poured out? How dare I neglect that? That is a horrible thing for me to do. Does that make sense? It could, yeah, it could. I think that's what you're saying, that neglecting is the slippery slope that would eventually lead to completely falling away. I would, I would say that going back, and this is a much bigger question, okay? Uh -huh. I would say that interpretively, to say it doesn't say this, but it says this, and you're arguing on a word, can be a logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. So there he doesn't call them believers, he calls them followers. Mm -hmm. And so there's a difference between followers and believers. Mm -hmm. So many times that is not, that, that just doesn't play out when you look at the rest of the language. Yeah. So, that's why I would say, notice it says neglect and not reject. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that actually means at all. Because mm -hmm. the, the words that are used in the New Testament are not that quite that precise. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes they'll use it to imply that and also more. Mm -hmm. So to, it, to me it doesn't prove anything. It just well, maybe I'm just speaking from my own. I can neglect it, but I'm not rejecting it. I can be guilty of that. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue that. But I'm saying to, to argue that the Hebrew writer is using the word neglect and not reject because he's trying to differentiate between neglecting yeah. no, the I agree. slope and rejecting the final destination. Mm -hmm. I would say is outside the scope of that verse. I agree. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and I would say this is where the bigger picture is. Just be careful. There's again a lot of this. Notice how he uses this instead of this. Mm 
But if we were in a, in a Reformed church, they would really be making that distinction. And by the way, it may be true Yeah. you need other supporting verses to, to give Right, that right. When they would have their sure. supporting verses. Sure. Yeah. yeah, they would. So I agree with you. The Reformed guys, I can discuss. Yeah. My point is, hang on just a second, my point is, this is what, and, and feel free to disagree, my point is you can get so caught up in can someone lose their salvation that you're not even seeing how am I right now neglecting my salvation. We agree on that one? That was my point. Before you ran into that. Yeah. Yes, Ron. <laughs> Are you repenting? Okay. Scripture, we have eternal life, right? Uh huh. What is eternal life? If yeah. we have received eternal life, if we have been adopted into the beloved, what is it? If it's eternal life, it's eternal life, right? Mm -hmm. John five twenty four. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him that sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Yeah. And I understand. What John Calvin says is, though, is do you know that you have eternal life? And is that equal to what God knows? Well, God has only you know, given us his word. And, you know, we... No, but the, the question is, is that the, the primary assumption is, so the Mormons believe they have eternal life. So do they have eternal life, too? No. Well, wait a second. But they say they, but they, say they do. So they, no, but this is the ultimate question, is who is the... But, Sure, but who is the basis? The Mormons, or you, or me, or God? It's God. And that's what I'm saying. It's God. Christ. Yeah. What did you just say? Yeah, but I agree with you. Those who have eternal life have eternal life. Those who do not have eternal life do not have eternal life. All we have to do is believe on him, and we will receive eternal life. Sure. But do we not all have eternal life? It's just a question of where we're going to spend it. <laughs> on that one. <laughs> If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to look again at verses 1 through 4. Um, Lynn went off on the therefore statement, which is good reminder. Uh, when you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. Um, obviously, it is a linking word to the previous section in chapter 1. Um, when it is describing uh, kind of just how much we have in Jesus Christ. And then attack number one is against, um, I guess, abandoning, going back towards a Judaistic system 
um, when we've been giving, given something so much greater than angels. And then he gives us this, this awareness piece. And so I, I truly, I mean it. Like, I don't want to get into the debate about whether or not a person can or can't. I mean, that's way beyond the scope of this text. I, I'll gladly, gladly, gladly admit that. And we will have lots of opportunities to talk about it. My point is to then not warn people is irresponsible. That's what concerns me, is that when we are dealing with the question, and, I, and it does, I mean, it, it, I can see it in our faces. I can see it in our passion. This, this matters so much. And I think the reason why it is is because you had a grandma that maybe didn't live like Jesus, but at one time lived like Jesus, and it makes you feel better. Or the flip on that, by the way. It's not just that. It's like, no, it's, you're one of those people, and this can be me, that like things that are clear-cut, and so if you didn't, you're out. It's done, right? That's, I would even argue John Calvin's position is just very clear. If you ever wander, that's just proof you never were. Done. I, I, that's where I even have a problem with John Calvin. And go, I think it's a little more complicated than that. But it's interesting how much, and tell me I'm wrong, it's interesting how much we want to bring assurance to people that we want to comfort people. So Patty is troubled, and I, I have had actually even a, a greater uh, love and appreciation for my sister after we were in Japan and just watching how much she cared for those missionaries and wanted to love them and to support them and just watching her and Natalie and Ashley, just how can we help them? How can we serve them? How can we care for them? Okay? And as I was watching that, I thought, wow, that's just, it's a, it's a uh, I don't mean to be chauvinistic by any sense. I believe it is a God-given motherly attribute, actually. I think it's beautiful. I, I think it, it, it's inspiring. It actually makes me want to be more caring when I'm around people like that. And just how their first thought is, hey, are you okay? How can I help you? Right? I just, I, I, I see that you're, what can I do? I think, man, I need to be more like that. Because it's not just a woman attribute. It's a God attribute. Um, that mothers seem to be given in spades. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for it that dads can learn from, fathers can learn from, right? Can I get any men? Okay. So I love that. But the problem becomes, and this is a temptation that we all have, is what happens if you comfort someone in a lie? That's the concern that I have, is that the Bible teaches this. Be careful saying peace when there is war. Did you know that? Neville Chamberlain came back from a meeting with the Secretary, I guess, of State, whatever his position would have been, in Nazi Germany. You may know the story. Uh, he was absolutely convinced after talking to the Nazi, okay, that really that's what he was, uh, the Nazi leader, um, that Germany had no plans to expand their borders beyond uh, Austria and Czechoslovakia. And you may even, I can still see the headlines in the London paper. I can still see him stepping off the plane. And do you remember what his statement was? Peace in our time, right? Peace in our time. So he comes off the plane and says, hey, by the way, I've met with the Germans. And there's no plans of extending their borders beyond Austria and Czechoslovakia. Let's just leave it at that. And, and, and who didn't want to hear a message of peace? And I'm so glad I don't have to worry about war. So glad Poland doesn't need to worry about war. Good news or bad news? I mean, I love to ask this question because I, I think this is something that we probably share from living in this part of the country. But how many of you get really, really concerned when our political people on, let's say, one side of the fence 
love to talk about, hey, you really don't need to worry about things. No, 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 they're bad guys out there, but we really don't need to worry about things. It's more, how many of you get really concerned when our government talks like that? Because you're going, no, it is serious. How many of you do that? Just go, you can't do that. You can't tell people it's going to be okay if it's not. How many of you? Question, do you do that spiritually? Again, my, my only point is not where we end up in that final question. We'll have other chances to talk about it. And I do believe there's room, actually, to disagree. And I'd, you'd even be surprised at how much the differing... I bet Nancy and I are actually really close on this. It's fun to tease her from back there, but I bet you we're really, really close. Because what can sound... Yeah, what can sound really, really different, the more that Nancy and I talk about it, we're literally, like, centimeters apart. Jonathan Dorst, I don't know if you know him. He was the pastor at Grace Community. Love, 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 love that brother. And we... we when, at first, when we talked about it, we were almost like on opposite sides. By the time we were done, we were like, centimeter. he said, we're millimeters apart. I said, I know we are. It's the beauty of it. It's the beauty of it. But what we begin to, and this, is, this was kind of the, the statement that I made, the, the thing that we can't do with a text that says, I eagerly warn you to, we can't not eagerly warn people. So, for example, I mean, whatever word you want to use, I'm, I'm fine with using the words of the text. When was the last time you looked at a brother or sister in Christ and you said, you really, 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 like I can't stress this, you need to be so careful that you do not drift away. Because if you drift away and you neglect the salvation, that, I mean, when was the last time you did that? And, and part of it is our culture. Our culture is such a therapeutic our culture is such an affirming, right? So my kid gets 4% on a test, and I'm told to go, look at you, four of them right out of 100. I am so proud of you. You know, that's what we're, we're, we're literally conditioned now to do that. Or at least go, you tried your best. How can I expect more from you than that? So we are, we are inclined towards that at home. Let's just be honest. Right, is that not true? It is. Um, I don't even recommend that you do this. I don't mind sharing my failures, but I remember when my son, who was my middle kid, Mac, who's probably six or seven, came home from school. I forget what it was. Like, uh, he wanted to do something. I won't even say what, it, what the job was, but he wanted to do something. And my immediate response was, why would you want to do something stupid like that with the rest of your life, son? And my wife looked at me like I was crazy. Right? And I thought, ah, I probably shouldn't have termed it. I probably shouldn't have used better language. Um, but again, what I was trying to help him see was, man, there's just so many bigger things that you could do with your life. That's what I wanted to say. Didn't say it well. But let's think about this, this idea, and I just want to ask you, I want you to just kind of in your mind, and here's, what, here's the other thing I would tell you, is don't just warn the people that are on the fringes. I don't need to go, yeah, 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 because my son's in college. You know, my son's a freshman in college, and so, yeah, we really need to warn them because you know what they're like. Sure. I get that. I got a freshman in college. We do need to warn him. I think I need to be warned. I think you need to tell me. Hey, Jim, don't neglect the salvation that you have. I think part of, I don't know if I buy it totally, but part of, this is interesting, Thomas Schreiner, who is a Reformed theologian, in his book on the doctrine of the, what is known as the perseverance of the saints, which is different from eternal security, Andy Stanley, or sorry, Charles Stanley, the perseverance of the saints, a very strong biblical position, okay? 
What he argues in his book, predominantly from the book of Hebrews, is this, is that one of the ways in which Christians stay faithful is through the warnings. Thomas Schreiner. Thomas R. Schreiner. But think about that statement. And then, so let's, again, I don't care where we end up on this. That's not my point. What he says is, that all of these warnings that are given to us is how God preserves his people. I thought, I think there's more going on there, Tom, but I like that. I like that. I like the fact. First of all, it really lines up with the whole counsel of Scripture. So, for example, like when I say to you, hey, you should warn your kids about not drifting away. You should warn your parents about not drifting away. You should warn your... How many of you are going, well, that's just going to put fear in them? Like if I say that, then they're going to become afraid. What if, for example, if I were to say to you, hey, I need you to beware, right? If I, if I say, I need you to beware, how many of you would go, well, then, boy, then there must be something to beware of, okay? A couple of words I want you to take a look at. So I, want, I, I really want to just unpack verse 1, because um, I thought Nancy did a great job from the, of the previous ones, and uh, we got way excited in what we were talking about, which I think is fun. Um, Verse 1 says that it is a lot of fun. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, in light of the greatness of Jesus over angels, and it's just beginning. He's greater than everything. Um, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And I don't want to talk about drift away, because Nancy's already dealt with that, and I thought she explained it beautifully. I want to deal with these two questions, or these two words. uh, It's actually three words in the English. Much, pay much closer attention is the part that I want to just focus on. First of all, the, the, the concept of like paying attention, okay? The word is used a number of times in the, in the, in the New Testament. And do you mind, I, when I was thinking about how do I, t- you guys know I do this sometimes, we're going to look at this lexically, which means I'm going to show you other times in which this is used, and you tell me whether or not you get the force of it, okay? So this is that same word about you must pay closer attention. And let's see what other things we need to pay closer attention to to realize that's kind of how this word was used, okay? First one, and you can either write these down or you can flip through in your Bible and take a look at them. Matthew 6.1. Matthew 6.1. So let me ask you this question. How many of you maybe have warned someone or at least you've talked behind their back? That's what we do a better job of. And by say a better job, I mean a worse job doing it more than we should do it. Kind of a better job. How many of you think that it is, uh, we, warn, we like to warn people, you better not practice your righteousness before other people. Don't seem overly righteous. Really be careful trying to pretend you're a spiritual know-it-all. How many of you would have no problem going, hey, Jim, I really think you kind of act like a, spiritually superior person, right? Have you ever warned somebody of that? Or at least generically to the masses, don't be self-righteous. Have you ever done that? I've done that to my kids. Don't act self-righteous. Talking behind people's back, hey, you know them, they always act like they're self-righteous. Well, Matthew 6, 1, same word. And I love this. Beware. That's how the word is usually translated in the English. So pay must closer, must closer attention is equal to, except not the word much, that's where it it takes two very interesting Greek words, but it's pay closer attention is beware. That's how it's translated the majority of times in the New Testament. So 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And that's what we need to be aware of. Matthew 7.15 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Can you imagine if you didn't warn people of false prophets? If you kind of said, oh yeah, listen, I mean... He's really teaching some stuff that could send you to hell, but I wouldn't be worried about it. No. Beware. It has eternal implications. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. I'm not going to give you all of them, but I'm going to give you a bunch of them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Man, be on alert. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 6, you tell me if this is a good warning or not, although it's Jesus giving it, so you'll know what side you'll be on if you don't do it. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's the leaven? Do you remember? As you, I just preached on this a, few, about a month ago. Remember what the leaven is? The disciples go, it's right around the times of the feeding, between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and the disciples go, I think he's talking about bread. <laughs> and then later on they come back and they go, he's not talking about bread, he's talking about what? what's the leaven? Do you remember? The teaching, which is false. But right there, it's the teaching. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. How many of you would go, well, you don't have to be, you don't have to be afraid of it. It's really not that, it's not that dangerous. How many of you think the teachings of the Pharisees, are it is, it's dangerous. Which I like how Nancy was describing that about being lulled into it. Again, there are certain things I know that are just wrong. When we were in Japan, um, where we were staying was in a very nice place. I mean, the good news is, is that they're so nice and polite and kind that you've got sin right beside you and it looks not that bad. We were in an area You'd call it a red light district. There were just prostitution houses all around our hotel. But they were so nice. <laughs> they were. I mean, they were really, when they were kind to get us to come in so that we could take advantage of young women that they were exploiting, they were so polite about it. They were asking us if we would like to participate in that behavior. You know, they weren't, they weren't mean. They were, have a good day, which I kind of like. So it's, be careful. Why? Because without the warning, I wouldn't even know that there's danger there. It's interesting because I, I have to do this with my little kids. Be careful of the stove. But it's a stove. Mommy uses it all the time. I know. And it's actually not something you need to be afraid of. You just need to be aware of it. When I say you don't need to be afraid of it, what I mean is like, it's not going to come out and grab you. But the truth is when you don't use it properly, when you aren't aware of the dark side of it, it can really cause some problems that will hurt all of us. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Matthew 16, 11. Again, he says it. How is it that you fail to understand? This goes back and explains because they thought, is he talking about bread? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood. It's used again in 16, 12. So it's used in 16, 6, 16, 11, and 16, 12. Beware, beware, beware. Luke Chapter 11, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. And I want to I kind of add a phrase to that. It's a, this is a parallel to the Matthew material, but there's a very interesting word that I want, you to be, I want you to be aware of and maybe even underline or look at. 
In Luke, he adds a word which kind of gives us both a beware of and a help so I can go, I think I know how to be aware of this, right? Um, When my family comes to Oklahoma, they are just petrified. That's why it was fun to call them the other day and say, hey, add earthquakes to the list of things you need to be afraid of. Uh, My family is always, how do you live in Oklahoma where tornadoes kill almost everybody every day? Okay, first of all, tornadoes don't kill everybody every day, right? Um, But here's what I love is I remember the first time that I had a tornado warning. We were living in a mobile home in Joplin, Missouri, which what could ever bad happen in Joplin, Missouri, right? So we're living in a mobile home in Joplin, Missouri. It comes on the news, tornado warning, tornado warning. Um, Or first one, I remember the first time hearing the phrase tornado watch, thinking I need to go out and watch one. So watch was scarier to me than warning. Um, But I remember having the news on, and I remember watching the news, and then literally almost stepping three feet away, and I'm outside because I'm in a mobile home, and I'm looking at the weather, and then I'm back looking at the, and I'm thinking, how do you guys have the rest of your lives to do this? Um, what do you, how do you get everything else done? And I, and I literally spent probably hours going inside and outside of our trailer watching for a tornado. And then this is why, why I even point out to people, the reason why things like Joplin happens, I was on um, six different Canadian news stations when the tornado took place because my brother-in-law, who's kind of well-known for a lot of different things, uh, notified some of his people within the network of Canadian stations that we've got a Canadian <laughs> on the ground in Joplin, Missouri. <laughs> and so literally I was on all, I wasn't, it wasn't video, but I was on all six different nationally known news and Jim Johnson reporting from Joplin, Missouri. And one of the questions that everyone asked me was, like, what's it like to live there? How do you live in constant awareness? To which I even related my own story. Well, the truth is, is that you're aware for a while, and then once you've had 50 warnings and nothing happens, what do you do? Exactly. And, and hear me, I want you to think about this spiritually, okay? So I need you to make all the connections. Um, and so this is what happens when there's warning after warning after warning, which are important, and you fail to take heed. Then the tornado comes at a time when you're not expecting, at a time when you kind of are, ah, I think there, are we in a warning? How many of you have done that? I've done that now. I'm now in the stage of my life where I'm so accustomed to living in this that I'm, I'm, I'm on about my day and my wife goes like, hey, did you see that warning? What warning? It's so dead. It's white noise to me. Okay? Which, by the way, the problem is not that we give too many warnings. The problem is the fact that I don't listen to the warnings. It's literally a damned if you do, damned if you don't. We've got to be careful about issuing warnings. But if we don't, yeah, then we're in trouble too. So notice, so how do we, how do we know, and Jesus, by the way, is a real big fan of, and he loves to say this kind of in the same section in, in both Matthew and Luke. Um, he doesn't do it as much in Mark. But in Matthew and Luke, he loves to say, you know how to interpret the times. You know how to be perceptive in these things. How come you're not perceptive in in the spiritual arena? Like, how many of you are really good at warning your kids about being academically lazy? Right? Physically lazy. Health lazy. Right? That one maybe a little less. Right? And then when it comes to spiritual alertness, nothing. Why? 
This is what Jesus is pointing at. How come you know how, he says this, how come you know how to go out and to see the weather and to know what's coming and you cannot get the spirit of the times in which we are living in which the Son of Man is now with you? How do you do that? How do you know weather and you don't know me? And he's pretty uh, angry. How do you know weather and you don't know me? Which is how, here's how I translate it. Um, like, how do you know hockey and you don't know me? How do you even know theology and you still don't know me? How do you know people and you don't know me? How do you know finance and you don't know me? How do you know how to care for a cute, fuzzy puppy and you don't know me? I mean, you pick whichever one that you're passionate about. How can you do that? And it's like, well, Jesus, here's the issue. Like, I care about those things. Like, I care about my grandkids and puppies and football and hockey. And I care about the finances. I care about education. I just don't care about you. That's what we're saying. So how can we know or be aware? Luke 12.1 says this. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered around that they were trampling over one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Their teaching is hypocrisy. Now, here's what I love. So how can we beware? It's kind of like, I want you to be aware of, and then I tell you something, you're like, I don't even know what that is. I need you to be aware of this, and you're, of a Chinook. How many, of you know, how many of you know how to be aware of a Chinook? First of all, there's nothing to be afraid of with a Chinook. But how many of you know to be aware? Do you even know what a Chinook looks like? Okay, Lynn does. Okay? In Calgary, you have Chinooks, and you come out, and it's like negative 50 degrees, and then you go out 20 minutes later, not maybe not that, but literally a few hours, three or four hours later, and it's like uh, 30 or 40 degree change in like a matter of hours. And you look outside and you just see blue sky on the one half and just this ring of cloud. It's like this clear demarcation. And you go, oh, look, a Chinook has come or a Chinook is coming and the temperatures are going to change drastically. So I see that and I know it. How do you know to be aware of the drifting away, of the, 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 the Pharisees and their teaching. I love this. God has given us a system in which teaching is tied to ethics and to our lifestyle. This is why I would warn you, be very careful of being a hypocrite. You know the problem with being a hypocrite is people won't believe your message. Okay? So how do I beware of this? Well, does their life match their message? And what Jesus is saying is, like the Pharisees, that their lives don't match their message. Like, here's what they say about God, and then here's how they act. And Jesus loved exposing this. So the beware and the how you can know, um, we are really in bad shape in America right now because we, we say things, and this is why I'm really, it bothers me both in the political realm and then as it kind of seeps down, um, and a lot of people loved, I remember when this became really, really popular to say, but it's, it, he wasn't the first president to deal with this. But I remember um, the debate over President Clinton. And hear me, he was so not the first one to have a moral problem. He's so not the first. I don't know what number president he was, but everyone probably before that has had some kind of a serious flaw. So let's be honest, okay? But I remember people saying, listen, he can cheat on his wife. He can do all of these things. He can still make a great president. And I, I, with the, the conflicted part I had in me was I wanted to both agree and disagree all at the same time. 
Can you be a good president and have slaves? Yes or no? I'm curious. Can you be a good president and have slaves? <laughs> See the complex? I mean, I picked that one, all of a sudden you're stuck. Okay? But the, the, the complex part is, is like, does character and like what we, what, we, what, we, what we do and then what we say, is there a strong connection there? And there is. The Bible says it all the time. Paul says, hey, you need to be aware of these guys' doctrine, and here's how you'll see it in their lives. And we want to say, no, 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 no. You could be a really, really bad person in what you do and still be a really, really good person. I know people that leave their spouses. I know people that are um, deadbeat dads. I, I had a guy say to me one time, as his wife was in the process of leaving him, he kept saying this, but she's a great mom. I'm going, really? Okay, wait. I thought you just told me that it was, uh, it was like celebration of something your kid had accomplished at school and your wife was on a date with her lover. Like, I don't know if I'd call that a good mom. Like, I don't know. Um, this may shock you. You may even disagree with this. It, the, the context, I think, might make it a little bit easier. But I had a couple of young ladies in my office that were really struggling with a lot of problems, like very real problems in their lives. Okay? See, this is what's funny is when we all begin to agree. And so one of the moms, um, her three children were tested positive for meth. But just because they're making it in their house. She's not letting them do it. They're just making it in the house. Okay? And she is telling me how she's a really good mom. And I looked at her and I went, no, you're a terrible mother. You, can't, you cannot expose your kids to meth. You cannot leave. How many of you disagree with me? Anybody? Is a, does a good mom leave her three young daughters with a very troubled young man who's making meth and just go off so that she can party? Good mom or bad mom? Right? But see, we're, okay, that one's an easy one for you, but I can't tell you the number of times whereas it begins to blur together. So this is, this is one of the points, I think, that the Hebrew writer is not necessarily making strongly from this one, but I get a more latitude than Nancy because I'm thinking theologically about this. So how do these Hebrew writers begin to know this? Is because, And one of the ways that you can begin to know whether or not someone that you need to be aware of to kind of keep you from also drifting away or following their teaching is when their life begins to resemble something that is not Christ-like, not just their message. And it, it is, it's amazing how true it is. That's why whenever we're in situations I love, where, where I don't know yet, I don't know if this is a good person or a bad person, I love to say, well, we'll find out. We'll continue to watch. We'll continue to examine their lives, and we'll know. It might take five years. It might take seven years. It might take ten years. I'm not overly skeptical. We'll either think, wow, I mean, look at what God is doing in their life. And we thought they were really more, I mean, do you know people that just surprise you with the work that God is doing in their lives? I mean, I'm, I've been surprised at what he's done in mine. And then are you surprised? We had a one-on-one class in here. It was like packed this Sunday. Um, and all these people are really excited for the Lord. And I just have to kind of stop and go, okay, wait, 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 wait. Right now, it's kind of easy to be excited. It's easy to jump in. It's easy for that. We'll see. I'm not, yeah, I'm not like a, I'm not like, we'll see. I'm like, no, we'll see. The Lord will demonstrate this. But the thing that I cannot avoid is that there is a beware of hypocrisy. If I said, hey, you don't need to worry about hypocrisy. Just don't even worry about it. Do you realize how that goes fundamentally against the teachings of Jesus Christ? Luke 17, 3. 
Here is where the word is used pay attention, but it's the word beware. Beware to yourselves. That's why I think the word pay attention just makes better sense in English. But literally, in the Greek, it's beware to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Okay, what, what am I to worry about there? So I want you to think for a moment. Like, what is it to worry about in Luke 17.3? What was that? Honesty. Honesty? Beware of being, so be aware of being dishonest. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And before the forgive piece, I mean, look at the, and it is, it ends with that, but it's, I love to say, beware of not being involved in the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. Beware of a brother or a sister who is sinning and you're not talking to them about it. Beware of that. Okay, what are you telling me? Yeah, I'm just saying you need to be really, really careful that you don't have people in your life, especially people that you're responsible for, that you're not rebuking bringing to repentance and forgiving. How many of you just swallowed hard? Yes. By, okay, again, two questions, or two answers to that. One is, I, by myself, God not involved, there is no God, there is no Holy Spirit, there is nothing else, I do not bring someone to repentance, Okay. But the, again, going back to the whole neglect, reject, you got to be careful with language because it's more complicated than that. The Bible, the Bible does say things that, that insinuate that, but you need the whole Bible to kind of hold it in tension. Exactly. So, yes, I do because, you know, Jude particularly, we, we snatch people from fire. He, he, he's more, he emphasizes more on how our work pulls people from their sin. Paul kind of leaves it more to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense, though? So it's both. Is it you or God? And the answer is yes. Yep. Matthew, Matthew 18. You confront, you bring someone else. Treat him as a pagan or tax collector. I'll be dealing with it Sunday. And, and by the way, again, Jesus is giving an example. So like when my brother wandered away from the faith and I cut him off from my life and my family's life, um, I still had times. I didn't feel like I should never explain to him what's going on again. I don't think that's what Jesus, Jesus would go, wow, you read me way too literally on that one. I thought you had a head on your shoulders. I thought you knew that the Holy Spirit. So I, it's way more complicated than that. But you can't deny the principle by ignoring it either. So it's a, it's, I would believe it's, it could be a multitude of ways. But notice the beware here, guys. Beware. And so this is, this, where does this fit with Hebrews? Because the Hebrew writer is rebuking them for abandoning Jesus. He's warning them. He sees what's happening. He sees teaching and persecution, and more than any other book. That is why uh, the, the, the Thomas Shriners of this world don't hate Hebrews, okay? But I know of um, that, that middle group, kind of the easy believism group, um, and they will literally say, I will not teach these sections, 6, 1 through 4, 
Um, there's whole set four through six. There's a whole bunch of seconds. They go, I don't want to deal with this. Thomas Schreiner, D.A. Carson, those guys do a great job with it, I think. But there are others that cannot. Why? Because they don't recognize there is something to be aware of. And the process of us, and it's not just, it's, it's, it's not just like the, the moralistic sins that concern me anymore. Uh, it's actually like other sins that, that are firmly entrenched within us that we need to address. And again, here's how I, here's how I work. Number one, I got a ring on my finger, and so I've got a responsibility to care for my wife, and she has a ring to, to care for me. And we need to be warning one another on a regular basis. Okay? So when my youngest son begins to ask questions about, Dad, how do you find a wife, and how do you? And one of the questions is, you need to beware. You need to be looking at these things. You need to be thinking critically, which is not a bad word. It means using discernment and judgment. It doesn't mean being critical. It means being critical. Right? It's critical. It's important that you think about these things. That you beware of these things. Why? Because these things are going to deeply shape you. And so he makes it clear. Pay attention. Beware to yourselves. If a brother sins, rebuke. If he repents, forgive. Um, look at Acts 5.35. So the apostles are being beaten. And they are told in chapter 5, and he said to them, who's speaking there in 5? Yeah, but who's speaking to them? I guess I just assumed. I hope I'm not wrong. Is it not Gamaliel? Is it not Gamaliel? Okay, I thought it was Gamaliel. Yeah, Peter is speaking, Pam. You're right. But it's Gamaliel's response back in 35. And what does he say? He said, men of Israel, take care, beware of what you do about these men. Why? Because these men are teaching these things. What is the caution that Gamaliel has? You remember the caution? If these men are for God, we can, do nothing to, we can do nothing to stop them. This is what I love about Gamaliel. I don't know if he ever came to the Lord, but I love at least the apparent integrity. I'll call it apparent. What does he say? If these men are for God, we can't stop them. We need to be careful how we tread here. Because what if these men are from God? Now, if they're not, then we know it's a little bit of what I'm even learning now as I grow older on being receptive and responsive to the Holy Spirit's leading in my life. In the past, I've been somewhat, ah, you know, the Holy Spirit will be clear. And now I'm learning to kind of lean in more and say, no, I want to I work through the process of discernment. 1 Thessalonians 5 actually says that what we need to do is do not treat prophecy with contempt, but test everything, cling to that which is good, and avoid that which is evil. That's evil prophecy. That's evil the Spirit is leading me to. And in the past, I just wanted to kind of go, ah, if he tells me, it'll be in Matthew 5. And now I'm realizing it's way deeper than that. And Paul calls us to it. So be careful of how you respond to this. Acts 8, 6. And the crowd with one accord paid attention. They were bewaring. That's interesting, right? They were bewaring to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Think about that. 
How many of you blew by Act 6 and go, oh, they paid attention? They were, you know, they were listening. Here's the part that hits me, and I wished it was one of, I wished it was one of these words, but it's a different word. Jesus in Mark's gospel says, be careful how you, says to the disciples, be careful how you listen. And I was going through Mark with my kids at the time when they were little. And I remember reading that and going, I don't tell my kids this enough. How many of you have gone to church and just listened to somebody preach and then just kind of went to lunch and didn't think much of it? Any of you ever done that? How many of you ever gone to like a Tuesday Bible study? And you, I mean, you're kind of paying attention, but your mind's kind of somewhere else. You ever done that? How many of you have gone to life group and there's kind of a lesson in that, but you really weren't paying attention? Like, do you have any idea what you just did? Do you have any idea what you could have missed? I, I don't know how to always stay alert. I, I don't even know if I can, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know if it's physically possible for me to always be on high alert of terrorism and earthquakes and tornadoes. And, you know, if I did, I'd do something dumb like get under the table with my family, which is, by the way, not a good place to be when there's an earthquake is under a table. I had a number of people notify, say, hey, you might want to tell Catherine that under a table is the worst place to be if there's an earthquake. But I'll talk to Catherine later. Um, but I can't be on high alert all the time, but I need to be on high alert all the time. Right? Did you know that? And that is why the Hebrew writer is, see, this is the part that concerns me with a lulled into you don't need to worry about it. It doesn't seem to be the intent of the author. I don't read Hebrews and go, you don't need to worry. I actually get a little bit of a, I need to worry. Now, how I worry needs to fit under the total teachings of Scripture. What I worry about needs to fit under the total teaching of Scripture. So I'm, I'm with you there. But don't tell me to not be alert. Don't tell me that I got nothing to worry about. That would be foolishness. We need to go deeper and say, listen, no, you de- do need to beware. You do need to be alert because if not, see, that's why when I looked at 8.6, I, was, I, was, I fell in love with the idea. They saw these signs and they went, wow, this is a really big deal. That's a really big deal in the book of Hebrews. Like one of the things that you're going to find up when this idea comes up again is, for those of you that have tasted of the heavenly gift, those of you that experienced the Spirit, be careful that you do not planeo, fall away, drift away. Be careful that you don't do that because you've already tasted and you've already experienced. And so when you see these great signs, I'd even tell you this, kind of a personal piece. Have you experienced the great signs of God in your life? Have you had those moments when you just know the full reality of him? Okay, be careful, right? Now hear me, again, I'm not trying to boo. I, we actually found out that in Japan, this is crazy, they actually have an app, which is a demon, and the parents show it to their kids. Like if their kid is bad, the demon then warns them that the demon's gonna find them and kill them if they don't listen to their parents. It's an app. When you go to school, they put you in a closet where the demon is, and he's going to kill you if you don't listen to the teacher. No kidding. Can you know the problem, what happens? Is that when the kids grow up and they realize, oh, that was just a ploy to get us to listen, when Jay is preaching about demons and Jesus encountering demons, they laugh because they know that's just silly. It's like, Jesus in the tooth fairy the other day 
Jay said literally they laugh whenever he talks about Jesus and demons because they know that's not true. Do you see what happens? When you give the wrong kind of warning to scare, ah, when you do that, it's just like, okay, like I'm not scared anymore. That's not what the Hebrew writer is doing. He is not trying to, and this is why that hellfire and brimstone preaching that is apart from God's grace and his mercy and his plan and his assurance is just destructive. So the context of beware is not beware. It's you need to pay close. You need to be aware. You need to know what has happened. You need to be aware of the signs that are in your life. You need to be on high alert, not out of fear, but out of reverent response to the reality that is happening to me and in me through Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to, we need to kind of lean that into our children and into our marriages. Um, just the number of times, it's just, it just freaks me out. But the, I remember one, I remember one uh, couple that was going through some brutal times, and they were just the sweetest people. And then me and a, another pastor were called in to try to help them with a, with a situation. And we walked into their home, and um, they were different people. They were the most foul-mouthed, angry. And I remember going, you guys are like some of the most the nicest people in the world at Sunnybrook, and this is just satanic, like satanic. And it just kind of freaked me out. It was that kind of duplicity, which, by the way, goes back to the hypocrisy, right? This is why I'm not a real big fan of the, yeah, you can look something on Sunday. I know you know how to wear a tie. Congratulations. Uh, what's going on on the inside that becomes a big deal here? It's that kind of beware that we need to be very careful with. I know, I know. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I know. People look at me like I'm crazy, but I always tell them, this is why I lovingly don't believe children. Oh, sure. But the text that we get from Hebrews is that he disciplines us in this. He disciplines us. Let me give you a couple of quick ones, and we got to be done. Uh, Titus 1.14. Sorry, Titus 1.4.13. Oh, what am I doing here? Stop. First, there's all ones and fours. First Timothy 4.13 is what I want to read to you. Listen to this. And I'll, I'll, I'll read it kind of being very intentional with the beware. 
Until I come, beware yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Isn't that interesting? See, we always think of beware as like sin. Beware, pay close attention to the public reading of Scripture. You see how that has big value? So the Hebrew writer, as you move forward, I, the, the, the part, I was like, what do I want you guys to walk away from? I want you to walk away from the book of Hebrews going, what is happening here is of great consequence. Like, I want to, I want to stir your heart for a moment. I want you to believe with me for a moment that your spiritual life, which I hate kind of dividing our lives up, that your spiritual life is the most important aspect of your life. Right? And for that reason, beware. Uh, Beware of teaching that is hypocritical. Beware of teaching that is wrong and that is false. Beware of sin, sure. But even beware of the fact that you are going to the neglect piece, right? That's what I thought about that text. Beware of you just casually walking through this. I would even tell you, beware of you not telling other people, beware. And and I promise, if we become a culture and a church that's running around scaring everybody, I'll have a different message. Tell me, I, I, I I want some kind of confirmation. Are we as a church... And it's not every one of us. I know you're the total exception, okay? You're doing this perfectly. I don't know if anyone else is. Are we in danger of comforting people that need to be warned or warning people that need to be comforted? And by the way, at times, we're all of that. But you tell me where we're landing right now. Are we more spending time comforting people that need to wake up? Or are we spending our time warning people who are... Ab- I mean, how many of you have actually been scaring Genevieve with her wicked lifestyle? <laughs> okay, here's my closing illustration. I preached about how wicked we were. I'm going to use the example, and I'm going to throw Gary under the bus. We're preaching about... I was preaching a number of weeks ago about how wicked we were. I don't know if you remember this, Genevieve. And then I come back, and I'm walking by St. Genevieve's chair, you know, the throne... And she's sitting there, and I love her. I, give, I don't think, Genevieve, I've ever walked by without giving you a hug. So I love you being there. So she is sitting there, and Genevieve does in Genevieve fashion. This is what I love. Genevieve probably gets this. I'll use her an example. She hates this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think it's good to lift people up. So Genevieve gets this. I bet you Genevieve goes, I'm aware. I'm be, I'm be wearing. Don't you think she's probably be wearing? Why? Because she's evil? No, that's what's making her not evil, is her be wearing. So Genevieve's sitting there. I've talked about how all of us are wicked, and I walk up, and Genevieve's kind of giving one of those confessions about how wicked she is. Now, Gary Thomason didn't know that she had just told that to me, but I knew what he was going to do. It was predictable. As he walks by, he says, hey, Jim, that was a good message. It's good to hear that. I said, yeah, like Genevieve is wicked. <laughs> and you know what he said to me? She is not, not her, not her heart. Remember that? He wanted to console her. And I said, see, you too. We all want to do that, don't we? Listen, again, I I promise you we'll have more to talk about. Be very careful claiming peace in our time, peace in your life when God is at war. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this group and for these people and even for the opportunity for us to agree and disagree. And um, Father, may we always do so in love. May we listen and speak and listen. May we be confident and humble and confident and humble. 
God, may we warn and assure and warn and assure. May we comfort. May we rebuke. May we repent. May we forgive and be forgiven. God, too often we have a one-dimensional view of life, of you, of all of this, and that is dangerous. Thank you for Hebrews. May we, Father, pay close attention to what you've done for us in Christ. May we pay attention to the reading of the word, to the existence of your word, to the relationships that exist around us. May we first have a humble life that can hear dark things about ourselves and the beautiful things about you and then the transformation of you in us. May we share that with others. In Christ's name, we give you thanks. Amen.